In Denny, Mika, Pooter, Patchy, and though sometimes the mobile scratchy, they ring to talk to Macca on Sunday morning. We had a lot of days well over 50, and you can always tell when it's in the 50s and around that 50-ish at home because all the budgies come in, and we'll just have thousands and thousands of budgies, and every inconceivable bird that you can imagine is there, and they're all side by side. You've got your, your birds of prey, you've got your eagles and your hawks and your kites, your cockies by the billions, you've got crows, you've got magpies, you've got willy wagtails, you've got budgies, you've got waxies, you've got mistletoe birds. You imagine every inconceivable bird, and they're all there, and they're all that hot that they just don't move, and, and the budgies in particular, they'll come right in, oh, we'll put the sprays and that on, and they'll come in and sit under the sprays and sit in the trees, hmm. and they'll just stay there. When you've got extremes like that, it's really tough on everything because you've got to keep water up to your stock. It's just horrid. There's nothing nice about it. And, and I absolutely loathe summer. Autumn, to me, is the most beautiful time of the year. And, I mean, I understand why a lot of people like summer, but I look forward to autumn for a few reasons. And daylight savings finishes. Oh, God, it goes till the 9th of April. I mean, I don't mind daylight saving, but give us a break. Not for six oh, months, for God's sake. I loathe it. Yeah. I loathe it. On a Sunday morning, there's Aussies out there doing things, raising money, pulling strings, helping make a place we're really proud of. Launcestonians and Hobartians, and who's to say there isn't Martians beaming up Australia on Sunday mornings? It starts my week, Macca, on Sunday mornings. Strangely, it starts mine too. Good morning and welcome to the program. I absolutely loathe, isn't it lovely? I absolutely loathe summer. And the birds come in and it's 40 or 50 degrees and the water's there and all that sort of stuff. Quickly from Donna Bennett. Dick Smith's coming in in a minute. Um, he'll be here. I think he's here. I think he's in the foyer or he's in the green room, one of the two. Um, Donna says, Donna Bennett says, hello from Sandstone, the Sandstone pub in Western Australia. I'm listening to your program and just want to say hello. It's a beautiful day out here, 21 at the moment. We've owned our little pub for 10 years. When you can travel again, Maga, come out here and visit us for a beautiful desert sunrise and see the clear skies at night. Not to mention a nice cold beer, says Donna and Alan. At the National in Sandstone. Did we go to Sandstone? No, it's up the road from... Leonora, where we did the program, wasn't it? That's right, yeah. Uh, look, we'll talk to you quickly. Lots of things to do this morning. 13 Hunt, did you enjoy uh, the All Over News? I sort of enjoy putting it. A fair bit of work to go to put it together, but I sort of enjoy it. What about the the po- – there was a postcard from the policeman at um, in Western Australia, and, uh, yeah, lovely stuff. Uh, 1300-700-222. G'day, this is Macca. Hello. Oh, Mackie, are you talking? Is you talking to me? Yeah, I am. Oh, you are. Hi, Mackie. Lisa from Sugenbuggen. Sugenbuggen. See, I've always called that Sugenbuggen, but it's Sugenbuggen, is it? I know. I know. I know. It's, it's supposed to be called Sugenbuggen. Supposed to. Oh, Sugenbuggen. But I don't abide by rules. You better yeah, tell people. It's Lisa. Uh, you better tell us where where it is. Tell Australians where Sugenbuggen is or Sugenbuggen. Okay, uh, thirty minutes from the New South Wales border, northeast of Victoria, in Victoria, um, halfway between Dinsbyne and Bairnsdale. Right. So two hours from Bairnsdale, 
two hours from Jindabyne. So you're so in the in the high country. Half an hour from the New South Wales border. Yeah. In the high country, yes. Yeah. Beautiful. And and you live there, Lisa, uh, obviously. Yeah, um, I live. Um, about, I can see the river from my bedroom. It's about, oh, less than a uh, hundred meters away. And what? I'd have to go down there and take my own water. What? So, oh, really? Yeah, yeah. Certainly live off the grid. So you're <laughs> the phone. Yes, you're living um, sort of isolated there. And how long have you lived there? And tell us about that, Lise. Okay. Well, I moved up here probably about oh, 2017 um, permanently. But this was my mum's, um, uh, what do you call it, holiday home. Uh-huh. And she used to bring all us four kids up here. So it was the cheapest, easiest way to keep four kids together. And, um, yeah, so Sugenbogen has always been our holiday house. And uh, all the kids, the other siblings are back in Melbourne, you know. Um, but yeah. I'm up here. And, um, yeah, so it's just lovely. So it's a beautiful place. Um, and um, so you t- It's hard to explain without um, looking at it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Well, I can I can imagine. So you take all your goods and chattels with you, sort of thing, and, and settle in for a week or three or whatever you happen to be doing. Oh no, permanent. No, I live here permanently. Oh, oh right. Yeah. So you yeah. do most of your cooking. You can't just pop down for a latte down the road, I suppose, or can you? <laughs> uh, those poor boat people. I've learned how to knit, and now I'm, I'm I've become basically. I don't know. I do it yourself. I mean, today I've got to learn how to work. Try and get this inverted to work properly because I can't get the anyway. You have to learn a lot of things when you're out here because you can't call someone to fix it for you. So, no. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah. Well, <laughs> and it's a challenge, so it's good. It's lovely. Yeah, I bet it is. I bet. It's, it's, it's like, I'm um, sorry for talking you're right. too fast, but no. it's like anything. It's There's the good and the bad, and the yin and the yang. Um, it's just a brilliant place, but you've got to be, it's, it's survival though, you know. you got to make sure everything's tucked in by night. And <laughs> Yeah, you now, know, and why did you decide to go and live there, Lisa? Because I, I assume you were in Melbourne oh, for a while. Yeah, I used to be a high flyer. I couldn't handle it anymore. Um, I'm 53. Just figured I just, that wasn't my kind of style of life anymore. Um, mm-hmm. Been there, done that. <laughs> when I used to listen to you, Manka, um, Jesus, my, sorry, You're didn't right. mean to swear. Um, <laughs> it was like a full time 24 7 lifestyle, just working. Doing everything for everybody else, and I wasn't coping very well, so I thought we'd better to get out in the bush, and so did the family. So here I am. So it's all good. And and, and ha- it has been good. Yeah, it's been much better. Yeah, I, I love I, it. And I very suppose when you when it's you look done. yeah, and I suppose when you look back on that time, and it was obviously stressful, mm-hmm. highly stressful, you know, you know mm-hmm. in the big end of town. Uh, you look back on that time and and think to yourself, how the hell did I go through that? Well, I enjoyed it as well, but it's like, you know, new stages in your life. Um, I really enjoyed it. I got to listen to you. Um, I got to listen to a lot of things. I got to do a lot of things. So, yeah, it's just life, you know, just new chapters. So I'm pretty happy with mine at the moment. So. Yeah. So what do you do? It's, it's very interesting. Got to be careful, that's all. Yeah, I <laughs> all suppose. So what do you do? Go for walks, yeah. read books, um, learn, do, yeah. do pottery, learn the trumpet? What? Yeah. Okay, well, my morning routine changes every day depending on the weather and what drama's happened today. Um, you know, it's phone's gone down, cows have gone through the fence line, uh, floods, yesterday was floods, the day before was something else. So it's like, you know, you just got to work at the practicalities first and settle yourself down, um, obviously, and you just do the practical, okay. So basically I'd go and put the solar on, make sure that's running so I can have some some energy yeah. today. Um 
but I won't be able to run anything off it. The only thing I can run off that is um, the computer, which I, the internet's down. Don't worry, getting the Jenny fixed, that's going to be back in three weeks. Don't complain about you can't get something fixed straight away in the bush. That's what you learn about. Um, or you learn to fix it yourself. Um, then after that, I'll be, I'll be doing my walk. I've got to feed the wallabies, feed the birds, um, all <laughs> feed food. Sounds, um, sounds I'll lovely. Food. I'm getting nervous. No, don't so, get... Um, don't, but don't, basically... Don't it's get nervous, to do. I've got to cook food. It's, it's like being um, back on the farm. I used to live on a farm when I was a kid. Yeah. Um, you can't go to the shop. You can't do anything. Everything you do is just like you get up in the morning, cows, blah, blah, blah. That's what I used to have to do. Well, the same thing here. Get up in the morning, just make sure everything's fine. Then I go, okay, well, now it's my turn. You know, it's two hours for me and then back to lunch and then back to work. And then in the afternoon, I get my time out and be drawing, playing the guitar, um, learning to sing at the moment. Um, what am oh, I looking yeah. at? I'm sketching at the moment. So, um, yes. I'm highly creative, and that's probably what um, <laughs> got me into trouble being in the city. Uh, it's easier to be out here because I can focus on something. At the moment, one of my projects today or tomorrow is, you know, the uh, citizen scientist? Yeah. The yeah. 10 minutes I'm watching the insects, yeah. So that's my plan for today. Besides uh, all the work that I have to do. <laughs> yeah. Lisa, lovely. So that's my good time. Yeah, it's lovely to talk yeah. to you this morning in Sugenbuggen, or as you say, Sugenbuggen. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, yeah. yeah uh, now that uh, we're on the road, I'll make it. I've never been there, but I'll make it a point to oh, look you up sometime, okay? You should. Um, there's some very interesting characters up here. You'd love it. And there's only three of us that live in the valley. All right. Four. Five. <laughs> Wikipedia won't recognise it, but there's five of us. Good, anyway. on, good on you, Lise. Nice to talk okay, to you. Thanks for you. ringing. My guest this morning is Dick Smith, author of his book called My Adventurous Life, which is an adventurous life, but it's a life... Well lived, I suppose, in lots of ways, because apart from the adventure, which Dick did himself and sets an example, I suppose, for all of us who wish we could do that, and going for a walk is probably the biggest adventure we have in, in our mornings, but but also things like Australian-made manufacturing things in, in Australia, Australian food. <coughs> I remember when you had, uh, you were, I suppose you were disappointed by um, the lack of success that your food company had yep. in terms of you know, dealing with Aldi and uh, Woolworths and Coles and stuff, although they stock Australian things. But um, And I remember you went to the Manly Corso one day and gave away tins of beetroot or something, didn't you? Yeah, we did. That's right. We couldn't sell it. No one would buy it from us. Beautiful Australian beetroot. So we took a great big semi-trailer truck down and gave it away for nothing. Now, so are you, you've got a, a chapter in here called um, Marching to a Different Drum and uh, Never Ending Adventure, but... I suppose in lots of ways people know you for for that, for that sort of manufacturing uh, emphasis on Australia, on population, all those sort of things. Are you sort of disappointed? Are you a half um, glass full? No, I'm, I'm very, you know, I, I'm positive about Australia. We're obviously going to have great problems dealing with climate change. I think that's really happening. Mm. But um, look, one of the things in the book which I think is important is the, the fact that it tells you how I started Dick Smith Electronics, in effect, and Australian Geographic. And so anyone who's thinking of starting their own business, I've put in there the detail, keep your overheads low, ask advice, surround yourself with capable people. I call them my success forces. And I think lots of people will think, oh, that doesn't, that sounds pretty simple. Because I, when I started Dick Smith Electronics, 
I thought two or three people working for me would be great. That would be the type of business I wanted. Mm. I didn't realise that one day I'd end up with over 300 people and I no longer knew everyone. Mm. And, but, and you, but you also talk about, I mean, it's a lot of luck too, Dick, isn't it? I mean, a lot of luck. You talk about how you've been robbed and it could, another person could have said, oh, you know, throw it. Toss in the towel, or yep. we'll, um, you know, I'll get a job on the council or something like that. And yeah, no, there was luck. Luck in my life, I've been incredibly lucky, and mm. uh, just, just uh, but I've tried to make the book interesting because it covers all different things. I mean, mm. climbing on Ball's Pyramid, and uh, that's the huge rock spire south of Lord Howe Island, which I attempted to climb when I was a twenty-year-old. Went out by boat and had to swim ashore on the rock face, and then went back about ten years later and actually got to the top, which was incredible. And you're known in places like Turawina too, because a little, little daggy Turawina, I don't mean that, you, you know, it's just a little one-horse town, Turawina, and yet you rocked in there and you know, gave them some money and helped the CWA I'll, there. I'll and, tell you why I'm best known. People stop me all around Australia and say, Dick, we hear you on Australia all over uh, with Macca. Yeah, 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 so there's yeah. a lot of people listening to Macca, I reckon. I, I know. Um, <laughs> I realise that... Um, David Hill said at one stage it was the most listened to radio program in Australia, but I think that's because it goes all over, it yeah. goes everywhere. So um, the other thing I remember you said to me one morning um, that um, people living in, in certainly in cities and, and you bemoan the landscape, the built environment, and people are moving next door to you and build two stories and they'll look into your backyard and... That's yep. the sort of city we're getting now. I mean, yes, and I cover the book my campaign against having, for having a population policy for Australia. And one of the brings I, things I bring out is the system of capitalism that we have that I benefited so much from requires endless growth in consumption, and that's impossible. You have to live in balance. One day, I'm also concerned that I grew up like you did, Mac, as a free range kid. I had a backyard, and you could play cricket in the backyard and have a cubby house. Nowadays. So many young kids end up in high-rise like termites and are no longer free-range kids, and that really worries me. I think we should have a sensible, I've always said, our immigration, I'm pro-immigration, but it should be about 75000 a year, which is what it has been long-term, and that will balance off our population just under 30 million, and to go over that I think would be just crazy. Well, everyone's talking about the climate, and it's climate, climate, and the environment, and yet we're all living in high-rise. And yes. the thing about living in a backyard to me was blue-tongue lizards and tadpoles and birds ah, and blue yeah. wrens and all those sort of things, yeah. which we don't have in my backyard at the, anymore because uh, for one reason or another. But if you don't have contact with those sort of things, you won't take that through your life. And I've taken that through my life since a kid. And yeah. so putting people in high-rise... But there's no, there's no forethought or no. whatever. We don't have. We, a... we came out of the plains of Africa, so we all have an affinity to the earth, to the ground, and that's where I reckon. I think there's going to be, we're going to look in the future and think putting all these young kids into high rise, and they now have something called a wait for it, Macca, a vertical school, and a vertical school is the type of thing they used to only have in Hong Kong, where you'd be in a sort of a tenement on the tenth floor. Well, we're going to have vertical schools schools in Australia, and that's no good. No, I don't think so. The book's called My Adventurous Life, and it certainly is. Uh, I won't tell you what uh, – I read the prologue about uh, Dick losing all, and but he survived because he's here to tell the tale. And, yep. uh, yeah, good luck, Dick. Um, you're not going on the road to sign your book, but um, – No. Yeah. <laughs> but it's a good Christmas present, I reckon. Yeah, that's okay. what they call a stocking filler. <laughs> yeah. uh, that's what they call it these days, I think. Thanks for coming in, Dick. Good on you, mate. Thanks very much. Great. Good morning, Macca. This is Stephen Whiteside here, ringing from Spargo's Hut near Mount Hotham in Victoria. 
Uh, right, Stephen, what are you doing at Spargo's Hut? Well, well t- tell us what. I've tell had us a fascination what. with this hut for a long, long time, and I uh, nominated it for protection with the Historic Buildings Council back in 1988 because I thought it was going to fall down. Mm. And it was registered, and then the resort started to take some interest in us. And uh, early this year, it was refurbished. There was a huge party from the Victorian High Country Huts Association. They came up here with the support of. Um, the Hotham Resort Management Board and Neville Spargo, a descendant of Bill Spargo, and there was about 30 of them put on a, a terrific effort over two consecutive weekends to completely restore the hut and put it back on a proper footing so people should be able to visit it for many years to come. So how high is that? Does it get snowed in at times, does it? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I was here in May and there was a lot of snow on the ground. Mm. Uh, but in winter, oh, yeah, to get a, I'd get a couple of feet, absolutely. And he lived here. He built the hut in about 1929 or 30 as a base for his gold prospecting activities. And he lived here <laughs> with his uh, partner, an English woman, uh, all four seasons uh, for about 10 years, um, all through the 1930s Gee, in this one-room hut. That'd uh, be tough yeah. work, wouldn't it? Gold prospecting oh. in, a, in a place like that. Certainly in winter. I don't know if they did it in winter. Probably couldn't do it in winter, could you? Or? No, he couldn't. No, you're quite right. And and he actually, he's he's known as the father of the Hotham ski industry because he was originally employed by the Country Roads Board to restore the road that runs over the mountains. Um, and it uh, was originally a, a, a track for miners and then it fell into disrepair during the First World War and needed to be restored for the tourist boom after the First World War in the beginning, beginning of skiing. And they built a stone hut for him at Hotham to house him and his co-workers. And he persuaded the Country Roads Board to take in paying guests during the winter. And thus was born the uh, the Mount Hotham Ski Resort. So, where, but, uh, Stephen, where are you? You're from where? Melbourne? I'm from Melbourne, yeah. And, sure, and, yeah. I drove up yesterday morning. You drive up yeah. and then you have to walk some uh, some distance, I yeah. assume, to get to Spargo's? yeah. Yeah, it's a couple of hours, yeah, yeah. There used not to be a track, and it was fairly easy to get lost. In fact, I came up here in May and couldn't even, <laughs> couldn't even find the hut, which is very embarrassing. I had to battle my way down through the scrub and fight, well, fight my way back out with my tail between my legs. But um, this year, I, uh, I made it uh, successfully yesterday afternoon, and I arrived in beautiful walking conditions, overcast, but very calm and quite warm, and got some photos and had a good poke around and then the mist came in about five o'clock and the the rain i had my tent up by then and i went to sleep but it was just raining and raining and raining i thought i don't know what's going to happen at three o'clock in the morning so i beat a retreat to the hut and i slept in the hut you could uh, probably that would be dry yeah you could probably google spargo's hut if you're lost um <laughs> oh I, I could well i didn't have a gps in those days uh my son installed the gps uh was, software was, onto my phone this I, week so I was, but i ended up not needing it so yeah it was, yeah. It was my lots of little birds around here lots yeah. of tiny little birds you know which you just don't see in the city um bill called his mine the red robin the red robin mine because it was oh, yeah. the only, they were the only people that were there to share his joy after he finally discovered it in, in december 1940 and the other amazing thing about this hut is that bill survived the 39 fires in this hut yeah. he had a spring diverted through a corner of the hut and he could see them coming and he loaded every vessel with water and as the flames started sort of licking through the walls of the hut he'd throw a, a bucket of water on the flames and he had this sort of tarry, malfoy, waterproof substance lining the ceiling, and it started to melt and drip down and 
blew in his head and shoulders and he put a box over his head to protect him. <laughs> I think he probably did black out at some point, you know, but then he woke up and all the all the places around here were burnt out and they just gave him up for dead and he arrived in Harrogate about three days later and couldn't couldn't talk and could barely see. Well, uh, but he, he came good and, and and the fires cleared out all the all the scrub and allowed him to get to areas he hadn't been able to get to before, which is probably why he had the success of discovering the Red Robin Reef in in nineteen forty. Well, so um We'll have, the following year. Yeah, we'll have to get to Spargo's Hut sometime. Never been there, Stephen, but um, yeah, sounds like a yeah a, a very historical, very uh, interesting place to be. Always up in the mountains. It's lovely, isn't it? Oh, it's absolutely glorious up here. I mean, all, there's so much signs of fire. You know, the snow gums are all burnt and they're doing their best to re, re, revegetate from the bottom, from the base, you know, but... But there's been so much fire through here in recent years; it really has changed the landscape enormously. But it still is absolutely glorious. Isn't it? It's 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 no question about that. It's just a wonderful place to be. Mm. Good on mm. you, Stephen. Lovely to talk to you. Thank you for that. And uh, yeah, we'll uh, keep in touch. Okay. Thank you very much. Okay. All See the best. Bye. Bye. Kevin's in the curry. Good morning, Kevin. Good morning, Macca. How are you? Yeah, good, thank you. How's things in the curry, Clon curry? Uh, uh, well, it's a pretty warm day. It's going to be 40. Wow. It's not amazing. Yep, and uh, thunderstorms up at the Isa, so that's 120 k's away. Yep. So we might get some of that. Well, that might kill things down a bit, eh? <laughs> yeah. What are you up uh, this time of morning doing, Kev? Uh <laughs> Having a cu- uh, cup of coffee. Mm. No, I usually get up. I've been a rabbit trapper too long, and a, a you know a trapper too long in my life, and I just can't go past four o'clock. What before you get up? Yeah, oh yeah, four o'clock every morning. Oh yeah, at least. <laughs> well, that's good, I suppose. Yeah. And and. Uh... Oh, but then again, I go to bed early too. I'm half past seven, man. Mm. Yeah, that's very early, Kev. I'm a bit the other way around, actually. I go to bed about four in the morning, and <laughs> no, not no, not that late, but yeah, different yeah. different time of thing. Yeah, why I was ringing you up for Mac, it was about um, you know we, we don't get a newspaper no more. You know, Mount Isa, Cloncurry, Julia Creek, Richmond, uh, Weirden, Normandon, all those places get no newspapers, nothing. Yeah, I think I read about read that uh, I read some stuff about newspapers that was stopping in Queensland earlier this year. About six. How long has that been going on, Kevin? Uh now or probably a uh, couple of months, two yeah, months. That's, yeah, I think I read something about August. As uh, I recall yeah. about that, and I don't know why it was. Uh, there's a there's a reason for it, but that's not very nice. It's nice to wake up and go down the paper shop and get a paper, isn't it? Especially if you're in the curry or the Isa. Uh, well, when I was a young lad, I used to sell heralds to uh, to Lou Hode and Ken Rose when we were in Melbourne. <laughs> right. And, uh, you know, like I've grown up with newspapers. Yeah, well, a lot of us have, mate. Yeah, yep. Well, yeah. No, terrible. Yeah, terrible, well, terrible. Yeah, it's not good. It's not good. There's something about it seems to, um, I don't know, it seems to be part of the day to buy the paper. You know, it seems it's a bit like watering the garden. It's just, oh, yeah. one of the things that you just do and you just seem to, seems to put everything in its place. I don't know. I can't describe it any better than that, Kevin. Um, and, yeah. And yeah, well, I'm nearly 82 now and it's too, you know, like I don't know anything about these uh, technology now. No. Um, the woman said to me the other week, she said about downloading, I, I said, well, where's the semi-trailer? 
<laughs> I mean, that's the only downloading I know. Yeah, no, I love I love the feel of it. It's like a book, a book in my hand to read. Um, yeah, I, don't want to be oh, I love newspapers, yep. you know. And all these, uh, you know, there's no racing form or anything no more. No, exactly. <laughs> so you can't have a punt or anything. No. Oh, well, you can if you, you know, you're into this app or whatever. <laughs> I don't know. No, it's not the same, Kev. So you got uh, warm weather there, but you might get a shower later, eh? Yep, yep, that's on the forecast, yes. Yeah. 39 in the eyes of the day, but here it's usually one to two higher from yeah. Curry. Good on you, Kev. Nice to talk to you, mate. See you sometime, yeah. I hope. Yeah, yeah, you too, mate. Okay, thanks a lot, mate. See ya. Bye. Lynette's in Wagga. Good morning, Lynette. Hey, g'day, Macca. How are you going? Yeah, good, thank you. It's a bit of a dreary morning here. Looks like there's more rain coming. Oh, dear. What's but a... I, I just wanted to let I wanted to let you know we got our canola off on Thursday, so we've got something in the bin. Oh, that's good. That's good. That's good. I think there's, um, there's a bit of uh, yeah a bit of uh, rush around the place to to get uh, crop off before the well. There's floods coming, I think, for some people. Yeah, well, I, I wanted to let you know the prices, Macca, because mm. canola is really worth a lot of money this year, which is great. Yeah, a bloke in South Australia rang me a couple of weeks ago and told me that. Did he say a hundred dollars or two hundred dollars? Um, it's eight. Well, ours was it depends on the oil content, but eight hundred and eighty-eight and fifty-nine cents per ton. Per ton. Or oh, the other lot was eight hundred and ninety-seven fifty-five per ton. And that's uh, that's one of the highest prices for a long while, isn't it? Well, I think last year ours was around 600. Yeah, there you go. So this is nearly 900. So um, pretty good, but, you know, the fertiliser and the um, the chemicals, chemicals has basically doubled in price. So pretty expensive crop to grow, but we're very blessed, Macca. Yeah, well, that's good, and, and it's good that you got it off too. And um, You'll find that um, there's a bit of rain around still, I think, this next week. So um, I don't know what it's doing for the wheat crops. Um, yeah, ours is still, well, it's not ready for harvest, so I hope it's not doing too much harm. But it, it usually seems to give it all sorts of, like, mouldy issues or some virus or something. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> there's always something. Um, but the other thing I wanted to say about the canola is the local canola factories um, near us, too, in the Bowman Wagga area, and... Are producing um, uh, food grade good drop canola oil, which is nice. So our canola is turning into, you know, um, human grade um, canola oil. So it's a good local produce thing we're connected to. I'll say, I'll say. How long have you lived down there, Lynette? Um, well, I've I've only been here sort of, um, well, semi permanently for about six years because my my dad passed away back then. I was actually in Queensland, so I'm kind of half Queensland, half <laughs> half Wagga. Um, but, you know, I, I talked to you once before, our best food-growing land here is getting taken over by these horrible large-scale solar works. So we're still lucky to have some good food-growing land, but we need it protected. Well, of course. I mean, people have got to eat. Um, <laughs> uh, just well, make just makes sense. I've, I've, I think the government's forgotten that, Macca. They're prioritising solar panels over food. Yeah, well, that's because, yeah, 
Well, we know the reasons. Um, Lynette, uh, I'm glad you got your canola off, and, uh, yeah, I'll see you sometime down there. Whereabouts, whereabouts are you south of Wagga? Or? Um, well, a little bit north of Wagga, um, on the way to Juneau. Uh-huh. Um, not far out, but it's, it's um, really, it's the, some of the most reliably productive land in um, New South Wales. We're in the 1% that's always got a harvest, even in the drought years, Macca. Isn't that good? Good on you, Lynn. Yes, it's great. Thanks a lot, Macca. Cheerio. It's, bye. This is the All Over News. This weekend, all over Australia, people have come together to honour the lives lost on HMAS Sydney when it was sunk November the 19th, that's last Friday, 1941. 645 men lost their lives. Not one survivor, which is quite amazing, I think, when you think about it. There's been commemoration ceremonies in Brisbane and Sydney and Melbourne and also in the West at the wonderful memorial at Geraldton uh, on Friday, a big concert at Denham, which is near Shark Bay, yesterday, and today at Shark Bay World Heritage Discovery Centre where there's a memorial service this morning. On the line is Vietnam veteran and one of Australia's favourite sons, Normie Rowe. Good morning, Normie. Where are you? Good morning, Manka. I am uh, at Shark Bay in Western Australia, mm. adjacent to the uh, the position that the HMAS Sydney was sunk. Normie, there's been commemorative services right across Australia, Brisbane, Sydney, Melbourne, this week. On Friday, there was a memorial service at Geraldton. Yesterday, there was a concert at Denham that you were part of, and this morning, a memorial service at the Shark Bay World Heritage Discovery Centre, which is near Carnarvon. That's where we find you this morning. How did that invitation come about? I've got a Vietnam veteran friend who is an ex-RAFI, RAAF member, who was very involved in the ex-service community over here, and he wanted to put on something special at Shark Bay, so he's invited me and my mate Johnny Young, the old troubadours who were very famous on the Gold Coast in the 70s and 80s, still very big here in WA. So the, the concert yesterday was great success, was fantastic fun. But this morning is solemn commemoration and really touching. It's such an awful loss of life. When you consider that during the 10 years or so that we were in Vietnam, we lost 520 young Australians over a 10-year period and 645 in one day here and just out at sea from, from where I am right now. Really humbling. Now tell me the story about you in 2015 on the way to Gallipoli. You were on a cruise ship. Yes. We actually stopped stationary over the site of the HMAS Sydney. It was a, a, an incredibly ethereal atmosphere. Uh, I was able to place or cast over the side a wreath in honour of Rosty Wiley's uncle, for whom Ross was named, Ross David Wiley, and uh, he was on the ship when it sank. But then, just as the, the ceremony ended, the captain gave three blasts on the ship's horn, and it was the only sound that came from anywhere in that area, and it was the most uh, ghost-like. Not in a bad way, but ghostly-like feeling. It was almost like the ship itself was paying homage to the ship down on the bottom of the ocean. And I think, you know, I remember when I was having hit records in the 60s, we had a population of about 9 million or 10 million people 
in the 40s, there would be a damn sight less than that. You know, you get to a point where you know everybody involved in a thing like the sinking of the HM, HMAS Sydney, if you lived at that time. So, Normie, you're in uh, Western Australia at the moment. I want to ask you, that, how did you get across the border and how do you plan to get back? <laughs> Oh, I think they'd be happy to catapult me back out of this place, to be quite frank. I found it probably harder to get into WA than if I was a spy in the Cold War trying to cross Checkpoint Charlie into East Berlin. <laughs> it, was, it was incredible. They wanted to see bank statements. They wanted to see all the forms of ID, etc., that I'd already sent through. Uh, it was incredible. It's like going into a place that I've never visited before. And what about getting so, back? Will you have the same sort of problem? Will you have to isolate or something? No, no. I'll just I'll just fly back into Queensland and uh, it'll it'll be fine. I was in Adelaide two weeks ago and I flew back into the Gold Coast. There wasn't anybody even at the gate when I came back. Normie, great to talk to you this morning. Good luck. I hope to see you sometime. Thanks very much, Macca. And Johnny Young is over the back there, and he's, he's waving to say hello. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Good on you, Normie. Good luck. All right, mate. Bye-bye. And to give you an idea, maybe, of what that was like in 1941 when people found out that the Sydney had been sunk, I spoke some years ago to Ray Parkin. Ray Parkin was a midshipman on the HMAS Perth, which was subsequently sunk about a year later in the Sunda Straits in 1942, Ray is a wonderful author, and amongst other things, apart from his trilogy on his experiences in the war, he wrote that wonderful book, H.M. Bark Endeavour. I spoke to Ray Parkin, as I said, some years ago, and it was also before we had found the Sydney off the coast of Western Australia, near Carnarvon. We were in dock alongside Garden Island. We'd just come back from the Mediterranean and we had bomb damage. So we were refitting there, getting ready to go to sea again. And how did you hear the news about uh, Sydney? Well, at that time we were flagship and a very good mate of mine happened to be the signal officer, fleet signal officer. And one morning, about eight o'clock in the morning, he just came quietly alongside me and said, Sydney's gone. And uh, there was nothing else said. It was just information, you know. We didn't, didn't know anything at the time until later the news came out. How did news about something like that affect, uh, firstly, the people on board, the, the, your ship? Well, I suppose one of the surprising things was that a light cruiser could be knocked off by a, uh, a raider, a merchant ship. Mm. Of course, we didn't know any details or anything, but it was a bit of a shock. And, of course, uh, she was also one of the family, and uh, when the part of the family go, you, uh, you know, has a bit of an effect on you. Yet I suppose you'd been in the Mediterranean and a bit more accustomed than most to seeing uh, ships go down. Oh, yes. Well, there was that point of view about it. It's something that could have happened to anyone, so that when it happens, say, to one ship, well, we can think, well, that could have been us. And it happened to you subsequently, didn't it? The Perth, uh, a year later. Yes, with it less than a year later. Mm. We'd only just got refitted from there when we were sent up to uh, to Java as a suicide force, and we didn't come back. Now I know you were involved in some way in finding uh, where the Perth lay uh, in uh, the Sunda Straits. Um, what do you think of the attempts and to find the Sydney and where she lies? Oh, well, I think it's a bit um, 
futile. Why is that? You see, uh, we were um, sunk fairly close to shore and uh, we had some idea of the approximate position because it was a night action and um, we had the navigator there and he was keeping track of the ship until we got sunk. And it was his latitude and longitude that we worked on. Where do you think uh, they might find the, the Sydney, or you don't think they would? I think it's futile. Why, why is that? Well, the ocean's too big. Mm. And too little's known about where she may be exactly. See, that, that's the thing that's uh, hung over the heads of everybody, is she's a mystery. It's one of these old unsolved things. Um, I remember... It was still going on just after the war. And, oh, the correspondence to the papers and everyone had a theory of how she went. You see, it's so unexplained. There's not a murmur from the whole ship's company and the ship just vanishes. Well, <laughs> how does that happen? There's usually someone about doing something. And uh, I know there are all sorts of outlandish ideas. One bloke said that there was um, a major short circuit and it electrocuted everyone at once. <laughs> and uh, that was his explanation. But, of course, she's still a mystery. It is strange how she went like that without any uh, any reference, no debris or anything, you know. And a ship... Uh, in that condition, they would be preparing, uh, in an emergency, of course, to abandon ship. But there's no, no, no evidence at all of any abandoned ship taking place. The last that was seen of was by the uh, people in the cormoran, the ship she, she sank and uh, that sank her, and uh, they said she was. Uh, moving to the westward, almost drifting, that didn't seem to be under control at all, and on fire. And that's the last uh, report we have of her. Mm. And everyone loves a mystery, don't they, I suppose? That's why it continues. Oh, well, they all come up, you see. People are not satisfied till they've solved a mystery. <laughs> but uh, in my opinion, well, she's gone. But at least the blokes went, that went with her, they... They went down, and that's their tomb and resting place. Why disturb them? This is the All Over News, and as usual, our listeners on Sunday morning make us aware, or make me aware, of much interesting information that would otherwise pass us by. This was Frank last Sunday. G'day, Ian. Frank from Doncaster. How are you, mate? Yeah, good. I wanted to talk to you about building surveying. actually spoke to you about 10 years ago. When I was in China, I called you from China because I was teaching building surveying over there. It was about 10 years ago, Ian. 10? So, um, God help me. Yeah, yeah, I just thought I'd talk to you about building surveying. It's a topic that doesn't come up very much. It's sort of well in the background. There's just been a building confidence report that our confidence in the quality of the building work we do at the moment is at the lowest point it's ever been. Why is that, do you reckon? Because we can't get good inspectors and good building surveyors they're just run off their feet at the moment. There's some inspectors that are being asked to do just too much. There's just not enough of them. And it's a great career to be in. You're your own boss, pretty much. You just go on site, you do an inspection, you write a report, whether, yay, whether it's yay or nay. 
and you send it in. It brings a lot of satisfaction to a lot of people, a lot of my friends. Because there's so much, uh, you know, as an outsider, so much building going on, high-rise and all sorts of stuff, that no wonder. I mean, they don't plan for it. It's a bit like when you get a pandemic and all of a sudden you haven't got enough doctors and you haven't got enough nurses and you haven't got enough anything, and it's the same, seems to me, in the building industry. I mean, just as an interested, dispassionate observer, Frank. No, you're exactly right, you know, and we're struggling we train we I, at the institute where I work, and we try and train as many as we possibly can. And um, they just get snapped up into the building industry before they actually even start as building surveyors. I had just two of my top students snapped up by a private company, and all they do is check buildings for essential services like you know hydrants and uh, fire extinguishers and stuff like that. So we've lost them. Not um, do- after two years of training. Not doing the nitty-gritty work that needs to be done. That's right. So- and in the old days, you know, um, I, I, was, I started off as a carpenter in when I was 15 and did it for a long time and really enjoyed it. And in the old days, when you, when you cut your fingers off or whatever, you, well, you became an inspector because you <laughs> couldn't work anymore. But that doesn't happen anymore. We get people from all trades and a lot of people reskilling as well from the auto industry. We've had lots of those people come in and train, but they just get poached into other industries. We just can't get enough building surveyors onto the ground out there for them to do inspections well, you know, to spend enough time. There's Um, building surveyors that are trying to do eight and ten inspections a day when they should only be doing sort of maybe two or three in the morning and two or three in the afternoon. And that's important because how many times do you read in the paper about problems with buildings and cracks and all that sort of stuff? And I I suspect that's because we don't have a plethora of good surveyors who are interested and um, passionate about their work. And that's right. That's exactly right. And you're right on the money there. It's, It's a shame. It's a great shame. And it makes me sad that we are in that situation and the quality of our building work has gone down. I see it every day. I take my students out on site. Part of the course is we get them out on site, we get them doing inspections, so, and we, we point out the things that they really need to look for. And I love the cards and letters I get. This from Andy Cohen, Detective Sergeant, WA Police. Morning, Macca. The town has just been through a big four weeks. Cleo Smith, Carnarvon, was missing for 18 days and was eventually found and returned to her parents. I was a copper working on the case, says Andy. Since her recovery, the police station has received letters, cards, flowers, phone calls and delicious cakes from locals and people all around Australia and the world. Thanks to everyone who took time to send in gifts and appreciations says Andy Cohen, Detective Sergeant, WA Police. How about that? And thank you, Andy Cohen, and the men and women in blue who do a wonderful job all over. G'day, this is Macca. Oh, g'day, Macca. My name's Frank Rutherford. I live in Pakenham in Victoria. Mm-hmm. I was a soldier in Vietnam uh, and um, carried a machine gun in 1970, and uh, I've been reading about a VC winner in World War One called Joseph Maxwell, yep. and he started at Gallipoli and comparing what they did compared to what I did in Vietnam. And uh, I'll tell you what, uh, the, the guys that landed on Gallipoli and, uh, and the years after, they were so amazing. They saw so much death and horror, 
and yet uh, they never lost their spirit. Even four years after the war started, the Australian soldiers were still keen to go to the next battle. And, you know, you've got to take your hat off to those boys. Although it was hard in Vietnam, the length of the war over there and the the amount of death they saw, thousands died on each side. Yeah. Uh, it really is way, it's it's so interesting, you know. It's not it's very sad, but that's why people who come to Australia should be given an understanding of what young people have done beforehand, you know. I think everybody should, Frank. It's often, you know, people who live here are, you know, blissfully unaware of uh uh, the things that have gone before because we were all built on the work of, of, of all sorts of work uh, that people have gone before, I think, Frank. I agree with you, Mac. And, um, you know, you may know that some of the fellows that came back from the Second World War, they were so keen to get onto the Australian shores, they jumped off the ship and sadly died. <laughs> really? It's... Yeah, they jumped overboard. You know, they wanted to get off, get onto Australian soil. Uh, I'm actually a lawyer of 40 years as a lawyer, and uh, I've read a lot, of course. And, mm. um, yeah, so, uh, but, look, those fellas uh, were fantastic. But some of my mates in Vietnam were just as courageous and did such a good job. Of course, of course, Frank. And uh, were you a, a, an Army person or you were a national serviceman? I was a national serviceman, and I became a machine gunner in my platoon. Wow. And look, I, I enjoyed the – it sounds – I enjoy is the wrong word, but I would do it again any day because of the the spirit of adventure for young well, young people and the mates you make. It, you just can't put a figure on it. Frank, uh, nice to talk to you. Where are you this morning? Did you say Lang Lang? Well, I'm, I'm in – Heading, I've got a disabled sister in one bag. I'm going to visit her. All right. Good on you, Frank. I'm driving down, yeah. Nice. Okay, Mac, I hope that adds to your show anyway. It does, Frank. Everybody adds to it. Good on you. Nice to talk to you, Frank. Thanks, Macca. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.